Support for Great Minds is provided by The Wine Store, located at 1200 Central Avenue in Naples. The Wine Store offers a unique selection of wines from small production, artisan, and family-owned wineries. Their in-store wine education center hosts classes for the novice and connoisseur alike. Details are at thewinestorenaples.com. And welcome to Grape Minds, a wine-centric podcast where two wine-loving friends take a look at what's beyond the glass. We look at the people that make it happen, the history and the culture behind what's in the glass. I'm Julie Glenn. And I'm Gina Birch. Like many of you, we've been doing a lot of wine consumption while sheltering at home during these uh, coronavirus restrictions. Thank God for wine shipping. That's all I can say. Yeah, and let's just take a little moment to raise our glass to those delivery folks who are out there every day. Getting goods to Mm -hmm. our door and all those frontline workers, nurses, doctors, emergency medical personnel, the people checking us out at the Mm -hmm. grocery store, all heroes in my book. Man, Gina, a lot has changed in the last couple of months. Girl, you are not lying. And I don't know that it's going to change back anytime soon. But there is one thing that hasn't changed. You know, the pages of the calendar, they just keep turning. And the, the world is not stopping spinning because of this. And here we are in the month of May already, which just so happens to be Oregon Wine Month. And we both love wines from Oregon. Love Orama, I think, would mm-hmm. not be an exaggeration. Love Orama? <laughs> I just love them, man. They're just, ugh. White wines from Oregon especially. Mm, yes. I'm not just talking about that Pinot Noir. Today, we get to talk with pho- by phone with the winemaker of Erath, Gary Horner. And Gina, you're responsible for getting us all prepared for these uh, these wines indeed, in this tasting. Indeed. Hi, hi, Gary. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Gina and Julie. So these wines we are tasting with Gary are all, you know, under $20. They're affordable, the ones we're having today. They're widely available, unlike a lot of uh, the wines that we, we uh, tend to talk about on this show. And so thought that was kind of important. So we want everybody listening to be able to get these wines and enjoy them as much as we are going to be with Gary today. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard. I mean, you know, we like to talk about esoteric little weird oddball things, but sometimes it's nice to just... Be able to get something when you're out. Right. I know that what you're getting when you're out is not just, you know, plonk. It's quality. Right. Yeah. So, Gary, tell me a little about Erath, its philosophy, and when you joined the team there. Well, uh, let's start with Dick Erath. When he started, that was back in 1967. Uh, came up to the Willamette Valley, and at that time, there was literally no wine grapes were being grown. And a friend of his, uh, Dave Lett from Irie, had preceded Dick by a couple of years by taking the plunge. And let's just stop and think about this for a minute. A, nothing was growing up here, and B, it was even a cooler and wetter environment Mm. than it is today. And these guys went to school at UC Davis, uh, but they also had other professions. Uh, Dave Lett was going to be a physician, and and Dick was an electronics engineer. And they dropped everything and came up to this unknown region. And they brought along with them, you know, certainly Pinot Noir, which was their real true love. Uh, But gosh, they didn't know it was going to work. They brought along Pinot Gris. They brought Cabernet, total failure. Uh, (laughs) Merlot, total failure. Uh, And then Lisa, you name it, they had maybe 20 different varieties between them. Uh, And they rolled the dice and took the chances and, you know, Dick told me the stories of the early days uh, when they would go out and try to sell their wines, okay? Nobody knew what Pinot Noir was. Mm-hmm. And these guys would get together, some of the early pioneers. They'd go on the road. Uh, they'd go to New York. They would have 
doors slammed in their faces. I mean, it was just horrible, Dick was telling me. But, you know, the strength of this industry and what attracted me to this industry is this phenomenal um, sense of camaraderie and cooperation. And I got to tell you, if these guys had not cooperated with each other, had they not shared not only what was working for them, but maybe more importantly, what didn't work in the vineyards, but, so the other person wouldn't screw up. I mean, that's mm-hmm. to me, that's just amazing. And that spirit still exists out there today. I think, Gary, and, yeah. yeah, isn't that what kind of sets Oregon apart as, as, a, as a winemaker? I mean, there are a lot of things that do, but I think the whole that whole philosophy of the rising of the tide lifts all boats, where in Napa and some of these other places, everyone like puts their arms around and says, you can't peek, I'm not going to tell you, it's all mine, 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 and for you guys, it's just like, come on, you know, we're all, like you just said, I, I love that. Something about oh, being an emerging it's, it's, emerging region, you know, mm-hmm. you kind of got to do that. You got to do it. And, you know, I started uh, my, my wine drinking career rather late. I had a friend in college, uh, his name was Andre, uh, and we were both in pharmacy school together up in Seattle. Uh, I ended up being a clinical pharmacist in a research hospital uh, and Andre started my wine education. My folks didn't drink wine. Oh, wait a minute. They, they might have a bottle of Matus Rosé <laughs> on the table. You That's know, quality. For a festive occasion, yeah, right? <laughs> but uh, normally they were kind of uh, bourbon and, and ginseng, which is nothing mm. nothing wrong with that. No. Uh, but Andre, for some reason, thought, hey, you know, you might be interested in this wine thing. And Andre was single. Uh, and he had this extensive wine cellar. And I seriously, I knew nothing about wine. Of course, I may have heard of varieties. How, how can you not get exposed to that in the media somehow? And the deal that Andre and I had was that he would bring over a wine to start my education. And the deal was that I would make dinner. Now, let me tell you, I am no chef. So <laughs> I, got the better, I got the better end of that deal for sure. Uh, and, and what he did, he didn't start at the bottom. He didn't start at two bucks chuck. Andre would bring over benchmark wines from around the world. And of course, I didn't know what it was, right? I go, oh, great. Oh, okay. Uh, Latour, where's that? What's that? <laughs> I, I'm serious. This was his approach. How, and, do, you, how do you pronounce uh, that? Is it Petrus or? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Where's the street cap? Oh, you were ruined. Somebody. Yeah. Yeah. That's financially oh. devastating, though, when you can't settle for two buck chuck and you're still getting your career off the ground. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a problem. And then your family gets interested in wine, and then they expect you to bring wine to everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this process went on for a couple of years uh, with Andre, and I got to tell you that. Aha moment for me was when he brought over uh, a Pinot Noir in the form of a red burgundy. And I cannot remember the name of the producer, but I remember the vintage. It was 53. I was born in 54. Wow. Uh, and, and, and Andre, he's always with this great formal presentation, you know, you just imagine that. And he, he wipes off the bottle and he gets ready to pull the cork, and then he stops. And he said, Gary, there's something you must know. And I think, wow, this is really dramatic. He says, I'm going to open this wine and pour that first sample, and in 20 or 30 minutes, that wine is going to be gone. And I went, 
what does that mean? Oh. Like we're going to chug it? <laughs> what do you mean by that? And, I, and so this is what happened. So she pours that first pour into my glass, and I look at it, and it's like almost brown amber. And I'm thinking, okay, this is him testing me. Mm. Yeah, like how that looks like crap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, this is the color of I rust. Mean, it's, but, it, but I brought it to my nose, and I was just hit with these aromas. Uh, there's still this violet aroma in this forest floor. It was just intensely aromatic. And I'm thinking, how can something that looks like that smell like that? Mm. And then I took that first sip, and I, it was just like velvety sweetness mm-hmm. and all this wonderfulness. I thought, what? I have got to learn how to do that is amazing. Mm. And damn, if you wasn't right, in 20 or 30 minutes, that wine was just totally dried up, uninteresting, <laughs> gone. So that was my aha moment and what drew me to a Pinot Noir and really started my obsession, and I, that's all I can refer to it as, is an obsession of, of getting educated uh, in, in any way I could. Uh, find the Davis for short courses, reading every text, going to every seminar. And there was this one seminar that Seattle uh, Enological Society put on, and it was uh, five Oregon wine pioneers come to uh, present something. I went, oh, that's kind of interesting. You know, I'll, I'll drop in and see those guys. And it was on <laughs> the panel. It was Becky Rad. Uh, there's Dave Lett on the panel. There's Terry Castillo from Bethel Heights. Uh, Myron Redford. Some of the old, old-time people talking uh, and then just showing their lines. And something just clicked. Hmm. I said, I have, that's where i got to be. I'm going to be one of those. This, it is tragic, though, when you get those old wines, you get them open, and you really have to slam it because yeah. in 20 to 30 minutes, they They're really right do die. Yeah. Wow, it's, it's sad. Yeah. That's that's tough. Tough to take. Tough to afford, actually. Because you want to savor it, you know. You want to like just really savor it and sip it and just have the experience last a long time. You just kind of have to get a lot of people yeah. to share it with. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, not a lot, like mm-hmm. four or five. So when we're fast forwarding <laughs> to where you are now in in Oregon, um, you know this the the uh, area has changed dramatically since that time that you were speaking of, and it's really become world-renowned for for the wines coming from there. And when people are looking at the label, let, let's start with that. When when we're looking at a label for folks who uh, may still be trying to figure out some Oregon wine, we've got things like Dundee Hills and Willamette Valley. And so what is the difference? What are we really looking at with, with the region and the place? Well, you know, the way I look at it and when I get out in the market, uh, I think that the, the words Willamette Valley are, are really known for Oregon. That's, um, that's what you want to call it, AVA, that's associated with Oregon. And people can kind of relate to that. That goes back to 1984. And, and the rest of our AVAs really weren't developed until right around 2005 and 2006. So, you know, if you go out there with something on your label that says, uh, here's uh, Tungi Vineyard uh, from the Shahala Mountain AVA, people out there are going to go, what, what? <laughs> is that? We have no idea. But if you go out in the market with that Tungi Pinot Noir, Shahala Mountain 
ABA and attach Willamette Valley on that front label, then they go, oh, okay. Uh, so there's that going on. And um, for us, I mean, this is not like France. I mean, we have not had the centuries to carve things up and get a precise understanding of every little square centimeter around here. But uh, through the years, uh, we can characterize certain areas, the Dundee Hills being one, soil types being volcanic, uh, temperatures being warmer, the exposures being a little different. Um, the fruit flavors tend to be a little more on the fresh red fruit profile. Uh, and then just across across the road and up the hill, it's all sedimentary soils, uh, such as in Ribbon Ridge. And those sedimentary soils really very shallow and, and uh, really, really tough uh, for the vines to draw moisture. Uh, and then you look at the clusters differences from, let's say, uh, Ribbon Ridge on those marine soils versus Dundee Hills on the volcanic soil, and you know those two clusters up side by side, you would say, what? Mm-hmm. How, wow, those are different. The other one, this Ribbon Ridge is like half the size of the Dundee Hills. Well, it makes sense because the red soils are deeper. There's more water there for the vines to pull as a resource. And then at Ribbon Ridge or other marine uh, soils, they don't have that much. They struggle more. So we tend to find where the observations are uh, that those lines tend to be a little bolder, broader, uh, and tanned. Uh, color intensity seems to be up, and the fruit profile is a little more like uh, darker fruits. And so we've been able to make those observations over the last, what is it, 50 some years. And I predict as time goes on, and I know it because I'm walking around like every other winemaker, and we're going, wow, this area within Shayla Mountain uh, or Yamhill. Carlton, that is different than right across the street. So uh, it's going to get subdivided even more. And what's important for me um, as a winemaker is to educate the consumer on what what it means. Uh, What does that mean? And so what we'll do, uh, you've got the Oregon Terpene Noir in front of you, and that represents fruit from all over the Willamette Valley. And even into southern Oregon, there are single vineyard wines. Uh, and I might make up to 12 individual single vineyard wines. I use the very same processing technique across all of those for one reason. And that reason is... You can change the style of the wine so dramatically by changing your processing technique that you would you would never know it was the same vineyard. So to me, that's not fair to the consumer. Let's keep everything level, playing fields level. I pick the fruit and make the wine and use the same type of barrel, the same processing technique. So when you sit down and you try our single vineyard wine, you're actually seeing the difference between those vineyard sites within that vintage. Now, you could give some of that fruit to a buddy of mine who has a totally different philosophy, and we could come back together in a year and have those wines <laughs> side by side, and he would say, what? They are so different. It's kind of interesting. It seems like I see more of that happening, uh, like 
single vineyard mm-hmm. and uh, same treatment, though, uh, in or- Oregon than I do in other places. It seems like they do a little bit more of that up there. I, maybe because they're experimenting and trying to learn more about the different soil types in the different vineyards and maybe kind of, I don't want to say segregate, but more like, you know, delineate Define. the differences between yeah. uh, the products of different types of soil in different places. I think it's still an, uh, an evolution that's going on. If an evolution, uh, and if it was always the same year after year, uh, it would be boring. Mm-hmm. I mean, really. Uh, yeah. it's, there's no recipe, as you know. Uh, and it's the variability that all of us embrace. And, you know, Oregon still, even though, unfortunately, uh, climate is changing, uh, the vintage to vintage variability, the curveball that Mother Nature throws at you, uh, at random, uh, makes growing Pinot Noir uh, and making Pinot Noir an enormous challenge. So we have in our glass the Pinot Gris, um, right. which is probably among, I mean, I like Pinot Gris. I like Pinot Grigio sometimes. You know, it's, it's the p- same thing. I mean, it's just the gray Pinot. But um, in French, it's said gris. In Italian, it's said grigio. And in English, it's gray. So we use French instead of English because Pinot Gray does not sound great. No. <laughs> <laughs> and it ages about as well as Dorian Gray. So, um, but anyway, so we're having this, this Pinot Gris. It's in a slope-shouldered bottle, kind of um, the German style, kind of Alsatian style yeah. bottle. And uh, yeah. it's uh, really, really refreshing. I gotta say, I like it. Tell I get me. a lot of uh, a lot of stone fruits in there, and it just it has um, to me a nicer mouthfeel than some like people. I think judge Pinot Grigio as being wimpy and light, watery, and yeah. and, and, and uneventful. But this is man, not. this is this is eventful for me. I like it. <laughs> yeah. It All is. right, that's great to hear. Well, you know, I, I think if we had to categorize uh, Willamette Valley Pinot Gris, it would be a little more in that Alsatian, uh, not as acidic a little more body to it, uh, that would be our style. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to make a white wine, actually with all of our wines, that don't have rough edges that uh, anyone can put in their mouth and enjoy. Um, that's the target every I, year. I agree. I think yeah. it's it's really... Um, I, I don't want to say easy, but it definitely doesn't have any arms and legs sticking out. It's got great acidity. It's easy to drink for me because I like it. Um, and I think anybody learning a little bit about wine or anybody that just wanted a white wine that would be a people pleaser, this would definitely uh, be it. I think it would go with charcuterie, oh, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know all that salty yeah. meats and yeah. cheeses? Oh, man, I could Some eat salt drink. would be oh, great. Totally. Mm. Yeah, my wife and I were sitting on the back porch yesterday, and it was almost 80 degrees, and that's what we were experiencing. We had the Pinot Gris wow. and the Rosé. Yeah. Well, 80 we're, degrees we're in May for lot, you. Everybody. Whew. So, you guys, we're getting, we're moving now. I want to move now into the um, Rosé of Pinot Noir. Ooh, God, it smells good. Can I share with you the hilarity of Rosé? Um, because so I came into the wine world after college and graduated from Natural Light and Old Milwaukee's Best. Um, <laughs> then I went into news and I met this person who had a wine shop. And I tried a bunch of wines there. And I was like, well, this is way more my jam than bad beer. So, uh, well, no offense to the people who love that. Yeah. Um, they're probably not listening to this podcast, though. Um, anyway, uh, so, yeah, I was at this little wine shop. She had a um, 
you know, this was in the era of white Zinfandel falling out of fa- favor, mm. like early, early 90s, right? And uh, white Zinfandel was, people were kind of laughing at it finally, and then, but still people drank it. Yeah, and they still I did do. too. I admit. Um, but somebody brought a white Merlot, which was so weird to me. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll try it. Well, it just, that tasted like water. You want to talk about water. Mm-hmm. But then somebody brought a rosé of Pinot Noir. And I was like, oh, this is good. Now we're talking. Mm. And this is what we're talking about. Pinot Noir is just so much better for a rosé. Why does that yeah, work why? that why way? Is that does, why does Pinot Noir work better as a rosé than something like Merlot? For, for me, um, what works there is Pinot Noir uh, as a variety uh, is not aggressively tanning. So when we're making a rosé from it, we're, we're still pressing you know, fruit in a press. Uh, but what you extract is not bitter tannin because it just doesn't have it in it. So you don't get the distraction of um, some astringency or edginess from Pinot Noir if you do it right. And um, the fruit flavors and the aromas out of Pinot Noir mm-hmm. are so much more um, uh, fruit-ish uh, as opposed to Merlot oftentimes, at least my experience with Merlot and Cabernet Franc made as rosés can have this little herbal edge to them. Uh, we're looking for more primary fruits, uh, more identifiable fruits in our rosé, and that's what I find appealing, and uh, hopefully everybody else does too. I'm getting some summer berries here. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, the red ones, totally. you know. Some strawberry yeah, in early there Early on in that, in that fermentation, mm-hmm. before we bottle, we get that. Uh, we'll also get some really pleasant melon and uh, white peach. Yeah. Oftentimes, hmm. uh, and more importantly, you know, a, a lot of times people used to think, "Oh, I don't want rosé because it's going to be sweet." Um, <laughs> that's like, not. I know, feel like we're over that though. There, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think the market's over yeah. it though, thinking that rosé is sweet? I hope so. Man, this is fighting I mean, this fight for a long time. We, we can't. We can't um, bottle enough right now. Well, yeah. This is a really dry a finish. Good. Was this, is this Sanier, is it bleed off, or did you uh, keep these berries no, separate? No, it's, it's, it's all, it's 100%. We load um, the press with whole clusters mm-hmm. uh, and, and press as we might normally do with the Pinot Gris, kind mm-hmm. of gently. Uh, and so the color that you're seeing there is actually the color that comes from the skin. It's not us uh, doing any bleed off. Uh, it's 100% whole cluster or whole berry press, and that's that's what you get. As long as you don't press too hard, you press too hard, then, then you get too much color. And we've it's always beautiful. wanted that real pale, pretty. Like ballet pink is what it, I like to really call it. It really is. It totally yeah, is ballet yeah, pink. Yeah, totally. It's like my ballet slippers when I was little. Maybe that's one reason why I like it so much. Also, it's kind of yeah. a tiny, and maybe might be the lighting in here, a little bit of an orange hue to me. Just slight. Yep. Just edging towards yeah. salmon right. pink. Yeah. It's really good, yeah, though. Exactly. The, some, some, sometimes it'll be a little uh, like a coral-like mm-hmm. yeah. that appears in it as it gets a little older. It smells so good, though. Mm. Oh, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. Oh, it's our favorite at home. Yeah. I can see how that would be I, I a, should a like crowd the pleaser as well. <laughs> and this is in the $15 range. And um, so I know that sometimes wineries do more limited production on rosé. It's definitely more seasonal. It's, is this one a little um, – are we going to be able to find this – pretty readily across the country oh yeah okay. totally the three wines that you have there today are are very widely available okay uh i think i made close to thirty thousand cases of that rosé 
but my first image was three years ago, uh, actually four years ago now, uh, of 3,000 cases just to test the market, and that just went away quick. <laughs> and our, our marketing people said, hey, can you make more? Like, how much more do you want? Oh, I don't know. Let's take a chance at 10,000 cases. Holy crap. Okay. That's a big uh, jump. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, right? And so I, I, I knew what we could do. I said, sure. Boom. That sells out. And they came back, 15,000. Okay, boom. That sells out. And they said, how about 30? Okay, great. Uh, and so that's where we're at, 30,000 cases. And, and, you know, it might sound like a lot, and it kind of is. Uh, a lot of times people think, you know, wines of significant production uh, for some reason, aren't as good mm-hmm. as you know mm-hmm. small boutique wineries. I got to be honest; uh, I've thought that and, too. I'm sorry. Yeah, I have thought the same. Totally. And, yeah, and, and, uh, and but if if you truly understand um, production um, techniques and you have all the tools available to you to do the right thing or to not do anything, and that's that's part of this whole. Uh, minimal intervention is every winemaker, you're not going to intervene unless something needs to happen. Um, so you can make large volumes of things if you have absolute control over your fruit sources. Mm. You can you can never compromise, uh, you know, trying to grow volume of certain items by taking in lesser quality fruit. You're just going to shoot yourself in the foot. Good point. And okay. Yeah, that, that are, completely are you, makes sense. So, are we converting you then, Julie? I, you I know, am. I no, are you guys. Too. I am so excited that we tried these. I am because too. Because now I'm like, I'm getting that, and I'm getting that. Because I'm, you know, you'll find yourself where you just need to. You don't have time to go out of your way. You don't want to wait for another delivery. And these yeah. are, if they're out there, they're a good solid buy. You know, and I see these the, this label a lot, and it's been a long time since I've tried them. So I'm really happy you're with us, Gary, and and taking us through these because uh, I think. Uh, I, I would definitely purchase any of these, and so we're gonna we're gonna move on a little bit to the Pinot. Now, you 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 gave us a little background of Oregon Pinot and the soils, and you know we have the volcanic and the uh, you know the the marine soils, and the one that we have now is the one that's oh yeah I had to hear that pour that sounded oh, yeah, so that's good <laughs> that is a light color. This is the, this is a blend you you As said it, you, it comes from several sites around the Willamette Valley. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, one thing you need to know is, uh, and I was looking at our, our vineyard spreadsheet the other day, we farm or have farmed for us um, close to 150 individual blocks of Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley down slightly into southern Oregon. So that's a lot. Mm-hmm. That represents, in terms of acreage, about 1,600 acres spread all over the place. And... Um, And so what you're seeing there is really, uh, in my mind, a reflection of the vintage in general, or really what our interpretation of um, Oregon Pinot Noir is. And we're on Uh, 217, by the way. Sorry to interrupt you, but for people listening, that's the vintage we're drinking. Yep, 2017. Uh, And so, again, you know, that whole stylistic approach, what what we're shooting for here is no edges. I want you, or the consumer, to get that wine in their mouth um, and it to be this really soft, long, gentle ride with nothing weird. Pure fruit, not too much oak, 
uh, a great range of food flexibility. We, we like it with, um, you know, red wine with fish. Oftentimes people go, what? Well, a grilled salmon with that Pinot Noir, pretty much any Pinot Noir that's a little on the softer side, uh, side is just a home run. And the acidity in this will cut through the fat in the, in the um, salmon. Yeah, I this think. is totally great with yeah. salmon. Yeah. Yeah, and and we're not eating as much red meat at home anymore, but, you know, with red meat, okay, with lamb, it's just like, man, lamb and peanut water, which is a slam dunk. Uh, But again, with with almost everything, um, mushroom risotto, boom, peanut water. That's just... Mm -hmm. For sure. And anything with truffles involved? If we had a pecorino with truffle, you know, the little truffle bits in the pecorino, Mm mm-hmm. So before we let you go, I want to do a quick question about um, Chardonnay from Oregon, because I know it's starting to, uh, you know, uh, see a spotlight shown on it in a good way, as opposed to, say, 10 years ago when it was shown in a not so good way. So how's the Chardonnay coming along? Are you making any? Give us a little overview, if you would. Yeah, we are. We uh, purchased uh, one of our estate vineyards uh, six years ago, and what came along with the deal was 19 acres of some of the best Chardonnay ground that I've seen in, in Oregon, which was, like, for me, yay! Uh, <laughs> and the pop- popularity of Oregon Chardonnay and uh, notoriety had gotten to the point where before that acquisition, I couldn't go out and find high-quality Chardonnay. It's not because it wasn't being grown. It's because it was all snatched up. Or the prices were even exceeding the price per ton or per acre Pinot Noir. That's how hot it became and now we have our own source uh, on a, a relatively cool site and for Oregon Chardonnay and you know, particularly up here in the northern end of the Willamette Valley uh, you, you get Chardonnay you don't put it on your lesser valued ground. It used to be people would say oh no you put your Pinot on your best ground Chardonnay can go down low. Well like that's a mistake, you know. Like right now, it's like what? That's one of your best grapes. You get it up on the hillside, and and so we got it up on the hillside on the great soils in a cooler location that extends um, the hang time, and it gives us this really bright acidity, which I love. I, my wife and I just go goo goo over um, a well-made Chablis, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that acidity is there, and again that pureness of fruit. And, again, I think we've learned that you can overdo it with wood. Mm-hmm. And so we backed way off on the percentage of new wood that we're using for Chardonnay and also for Pinot Noir, for that matter, uh, to let the delicacy and the beauty of those wines come forward. And I'll tell you, you know, I'd seen my first involvement with the Oregon wine industry uh, came down in 1988. And at that time, uh, still much cooler, the, the clonal selection that was available for Chardonnay at that time wasn't able to ripen to the level it really needed to. And now we know our sites and we have different selections of Chardonnay that it's just been turning the industry around. Uh, So I'm really excited about it. So Gary, I wanted to ask you before we let you go, um, we're talking about the Erath wines that we've just tried today and those are widely available. Are there... um, Winery Direct only wines that are on offer, or should people be looking at your website for things that they can't find in their local store? Yeah, exactly. That's the best approach. And I mentioned those, you know, ten to twelve single vineyard wines um, that I make. Those are normally between a hundred and two hundred cases, 
And those are available online. Uh, we've got a great wine club. Uh, and in addition to that, we make a small quantity of Pinot Blanc, which is just Ooh. gorgeous. Um, I would uh, love to try uh, that. Lake uh-huh. Harvest style Pinot Blanc. Uh, so there's a bunch of stuff you can find online that we just can't make enough of to distribute yeah, uh, makes sense. nationally. But there's plenty to choose from. And even if you can get online, uh, and we have the strategy of holding wine back so that we can release a little later and so people have the opportunity uh, to take a snapshot and see how well Oregon Pinot Noir can age. Yeah, that's kind of cool. It's, Do a little library a tasting. Per- yeah, that's great. Yeah, a lot of options, yeah. Erath.com, that's where it's at. <laughs> there you go. And Gary Horner, again, is the winemaker of Erath. Thank you so much for uh, catching us up on what's happening in Oregon. And, uh, and you know, stay safe. I know you're doing a lot of karaoke at home, and <laughs> you told us earlier, <laughs> and <laughs> drinking and we wine. Got a, we, got a, we, got a, we got a new kitten two weeks ago, so there's entertainment right there. A new there. kitten <laughs> and karaoke. Yeah, no, that's, that's... <laughs> okay, so tell us your go-to song. Uh, it's John Prine, and the song is um, Sam Stone. Sam Stone. Okay. Sam Stone, and it's it's really depressing. Oh, awesome. It's, That's great when you're in quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it adds to the depression. What are we doing? Let's have another glass of wine. There yeah, you go. let's open another bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Gary. <laughs> thank oh, you. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate uh, you having me on. Thanks so great. much. Thank you. Great Minds is produced at WGCU Studios on FGCU campus in Fort Myers, Florida. Our producers for online media are Anna Bejarano and Tara Calligan. Technical production is by Mike Canary. Great Minds theme music for Zante is by Colin Mannon. To get in touch, check greatminds.org or call the Grapevine and ask a wine question that we can address on a future show. That number is 707-200-3632. Thanks for listening.